This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We are in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 7, and if you don't have a Bible, there's one on the uh, seat in front of you, and you can grab that and turn to page 235, 235 in your scripture there, and we're going to be in the, in the chapter 7 of Esther. Now, have you ever walked into a room, and someone's in the room, and they're watching a movie, and maybe it's a two-hour movie, and it's an hour in, and you sit down intending to be polite and quiet, but they say, oh, wait a minute, who's that? What happened? And you realize you missed an, an hour of the plot, but the person you're watching with is gracious, so they pause it and explain it all. And then as they're going, you're going, oh, wait a minute, well, what about, oh, yeah, I'll pause. I forgot to tell you this. A, that's how I feel this morning in seven chapters into a 10-chapter book, is that how do I tell you everything that's happened so that you're caught up really quickly? Now, I will pause during the sermon if I forget to tell, say, oh, yeah, this is why that's happening, to tell you uh, beforehand. So I, I will try to do that and pause, but I feel a little bit like, oh, no. So let let me tell you the basic characters, and I think you'll be able to track with this chapter. The basic characters, uh, if you're new to this book, are a king named Ahasuerus. In the 480s BC, he is the king of the Persian Empire, which is the biggest empire in the world, most powerful guy in the world. His wife is Esther. She is Jewish, and uh, he doesn't know it. They've been married for five years, and she came in hiding uh, her faith, that she was, the fact that she was a Jew. So he's married to a Jewish woman. Uh, but does not know this. Uh, Meanwhile, her cousin has offended the second in command, the king's second in command, who's big in this chapter. His name is Haman. So Haman is going to kill all the Jewish people because basically he's offended with one Jewish man named Mordecai. So he's going to kill Mordecai, and he's going to kill all the Jews. So he's built this gallows that he's going to hang Mordecai on, and then he's had an edict passed that in like 11 months from the passing of the edict, all the Jews will die. So you have the king, he's married to a Jew, his second hand, in, his second in command has, uh, is going to kill her husband, uh, or I'm sorry, is going to kill her, uh, is going to kill her cousin, and uh, his second in command is going to kill all the Jews, which means his own wife will legally be killed. So he doesn't know any of this, and he's about to find out about this because his wife is going to reveal she's Jewish, and he's going to, she's going to make a plea uh, for her people. And that's what we come into in, in Esther 7. They've already had a feast where she was going to make her request. And he said, what's your request? And she said, come back, I'll make it tomorrow. So now we're coming back to the, set, to the day she's going to make her request in chapter 7. Present are the king and Haman, the second in command who's going to kill the Jews, and Queen Esther, the lady who is a Hebrew. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish. And my people for my request. So, we, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? 
Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king rose in his wrath from his wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, the king said to him, and, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that this August morning in 2016 in Frisco, Texas, that you would speak to us from a story many, many centuries before the birth of our Savior. We pray that this historic text and the truths revealed in it about you would be clear to us and that we could take this word and that you would apply it to our lives. As we hear it, would you speak to our lives? Would you change us by this account? Lord, we believe every word of the scripture is breathed out by you. So we pray that you would speak to us and help us this day from this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to walk back through those details just so we got them all, and then I'm going to make a couple of points of uh, what I think are application, kind of theological application in some ways, because last chapter, chapter 6 and chapter 7, uh, make a real important theological point. And I want to highlight that because it's a point that, that, uh, that really affects our daily living in a significant way. So verse 1, king, Haman and the king return to the feast. And so after the feast, the king brings up again, what is your request? He's already asked her a couple times in the previous feast. She didn't make it. She didn't give her a request. And so that's what he asked. And he asked two things. He says uh, in verse 2, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request, even up to half my kingdom? So she, he, he says two things. Tell me your uh, wish and tell me your request. Now these are parallel. Uh, I, I'm assuming he's giving her uh, one wish, uh, which is synonymous for one request. Um, but he is asking and he's assuring her, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Uh, I'll grant it. It will, shall be fulfilled, he says in verse 2. So he's reassuring her, look, my posture is positive toward you. And so she responds with this line, which is certainly uh, like protocol when you're addressing a king, but it's, it's a rich statement. She says, verse 3, she answers, if I have found favor in your sight, O king. What she's saying is, I'm about to make a request, and if you've really had favor on me, please listen to this request. Because she's really going to play to his self-interest here, because it affects me, and so it affects you. If I found favor in your sight and I matter, please listen, because this affects you. If you care about me, 
it has ramifications for you. If you don't care about me, it doesn't matter. But if you, have care, if you care about me, this request has ramifications for you. So he says, what's your wish? What's your request? Well, she's going to go for a twofer, and she's going to ask, make a wish and make a request. She's going to do both, um, which is brilliant. So this is how she postures it. She says, uh, O king, verse 3, if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. So I'm going to make a wish and a request. Here's my wish. Would you save my life? Would you use your authority to save my life? And secondly, would you save my people? I'm in danger and so are they. And then she goes on to explain what it is. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, Haman had given a large sum of the money, a large sum of, the, of money to the king to, to be able to make an edict to destroy the Jewish people. So she says, we've been sold. She's acknowledging that, that Haman, who's in the room, bought the right to slaughter, to commit genocide and slaughter the Jews. So she acknowledges that. So we've been bought, and we've been bought for this purpose. Someone paid so that we'd be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. That's the exact language of the edict, that they'll be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. It was pretty pervasive, pretty complete. So I cannot imagine what Haman is thinking at this point, because now it's, it's not dawned on the king, but it's dawned on Haman. Oh, she's Jewish. I mean, she's one of the people that, we, that, I, that I'm trying to exterminate. Can you imagine what he's thinking when she quotes the exact edict? King, please save my life and my people from this edict. Well, the king is startled by this. And the king says to the queen in verse, verse uh, 5, well, let me back up. She does say one thing is strange. She does say, if, if we had just been sold as slaves, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. What's she saying? She's saying, this is really serious. You know, this, she, in essence, I wouldn't have bothered you with something as tragic as selling a people group into slavery. The, the NIV translate that, translates that, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. So she's like, it would be really bad if my people became uh, slaves. That would be terrible. But I, th- what I'm telling you is so much worse. I'm, I'm letting you know, I wouldn't have even bothered you for something that tragic. I, I am going to bother you for the extermination of a people group. It's that serious. So he responds, he's alarmed. She is in danger. Someone's going to affect the queen. So he says, who is this Queen Esther? Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? In other words, the king's saying, who has dared to say they're going to kill the queen? Who has dared to say, I have the authority to wipe out a people group? Who is this person that is claiming this kind of authority? This is like an assault on the king and the kingship itself. Who would make this kind of threat? And then this moment where if you have an audio Bible, she says, a foe, an enemy. I just got to believe right there it goes, dun, dun, this wicked Haman. I just think if if it's... (laughs) I just want I I just want a dun dun in there because it's this moment of truth where the spotlight goes on this wicked Haman. And so Haman is terrified. He has been exposed. He's got to be thinking, how does 
she's Jewish? Who, how, how is that possible? How did she find out what's going on here? So the king gets mad and leaves and goes into a garden. That's what it says in verse 7. He arises from, he rose from his wrath, rose from his wine drinking, and went into the palace garden. Why is he doing that? Well, maybe he's collecting himself. I don't know. Maybe he's cooling off and, you know, count to three and go out. I don't know. So maybe, maybe he went to an anger management program and he's learned that when you're really mad, don't make a, you know, don't make an important decision in the heat of emotional anger. Cool off. Maybe that's what he's doing. I think what he's doing, though, is he's outside figuring, what am I going to do? Because if you were here when we studied before this passage, he, without really knowing what was going on, endorsed the slaughter of the people. He told, Haman came to him and said, I'm going to give you this huge amount of money. There's this people in the, in the nation, in our empire, that don't really obey you. So would it, be okay if, would it be okay if we killed, annihilated, and destroyed them? Because they're a threat to you. Oh, sure. Here's my signet ring, which was like his signature. Here's my signet ring. Go make whatever edict you want to. So he kind of flippantly endorsed the slaughter of his wife unknowingly. So it, this edict has his signet ring on it. He can't just say, Haman, how evil. I'm going to kill you for enacting a law that I signed. You know, I mean, maybe people in government try that all the time, but he's not going to be able to do that. He's not going to be able to say, he can't distance himself from this. So he wants to punish Haman, but he's going to have egg on his face. How's he going to save face for killing a guy that enacted a law with his signet ring? It's not going to look good. Secondly, and we'll see this next week, the laws of the, the Medes and the Persians were irrevocable. So when you made a law, it couldn't be revoked. So he can't just revoke the law. We're not even going to deal with the law today. We're just going to save the queen and and, uh, get rid of of Haman. So what's he going to do? So what happens is amazing. He walks in and Haman provides the solution. Haman writes his own uh, death sentence. Uh, He comes back and it just so happens. And the book of Esther is filled with, it just so happens, coincidences, which are things that God is always using. He walks back, the king, verse 8, returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now, what is Haman doing? He's going to be accused of attempted sexual assault. Uh, I don't think anybody would really think this is probably at this moment that he's going to try to sexually assault the queen. That just makes no sense. But that's what the king, in essence, accuses him of. What he clearly is guilty of is breaching protocol, which probably did carry a death sentence. Uh, uh, Historians tell us this, that in the Persian, this is in the Bible, but historians tell us that uh, during, you know, uh, the the, uh, protocol for a Persian king, that no one was to ever be alone with the queen. Now, he may not have been alone with the queen because there is somebody that puts a covering over his face as a condemned criminal really quickly. So somebody's probably in the room. But if, if no one was in the room, then Haman should have left. So that was probably punishable by death, just to be alone with the queen. But secondly, even if people were in the room, uh, you always had to maintain seven steps, a seven-step distance from the queen. So you never could encroach upon her space, even if other people were in the room like that. So 
he's falling on the couch before her. Probably what's happening is she's sitting on the couch and he's falling down begging, please. He's probably just, maybe he's on his knees, maybe his hands are on the sofa, or maybe he just kind of fell on it and he's, he's, in a, he's, he's begging for his life is what the text says. He's begging for his life, verse 7. So he's falling down. Now it's interesting the Bible tells us that, 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 that the Holy Spirit inspires the word fall. He walks in when he is falling on the couch because that is exactly what his wife uh, said would happen is that if you, uh, it said in, at the end of chapter 6, if Mordecai, Mordecai for whom you have, before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So twice she says, you're going to fall. And that's exactly, he falls in front of the queen. The king comes in and says, well, you're breaching protocol, but it looks to me like you're assaulting my wife. And uh, that's what he says. So they instantly put a bag or put something, cover his face, it says. Cover his face, which is the sign of a condemned criminal. And then irony of all ironies, one of the eunuchs standing there says, oh, by the way, uh, Haman built a gallows for Mordecai. And I love this little line that's put in there. Mordecai, verse uh, 9 Mordecai, whose word saved the king. So Mordecai, he was going to try to kill Mordecai who saved you, but that gallows, which is 75 feet high, is at Haman's house. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hang him on the gallows he built for Mordecai. And yet he ended up having to honor Mordecai. and It's just a complete reversal. And he dies at his own uh, gallows that he intended to do harm to someone else, and he's hanged on it himself. And there is this sense of justice for Haman, the enemy of Mordecai, the enemy of God's people, who legislated their slaughter, has received the death threat, has received the death sentence that he prescribed to others. He prescribed death for others. And now he will die for his own hatred and actions. What does this chapter teach us? I'm not going to teach all of chapter 6 again. I'm going to mention a few things from it. Because one thing this chapter teaches us in contrast to chapter 7, and not really contrast, in blended with, I'm sorry, blended with chapter 6. One thing it teaches us is that God uses human action. If you were here last week, I was celebrating, ranting, preaching, excited about the fact that God is acting and Esther's nowhere in the chapter, and it's all God at work. This week, what I want to emphasize, I don't want to take any of that away, but this week what I emphasize is that God uses courageous action from Esther. God uses her by taking a risk to talk to the king. It was risky that she approached him. It was risky that she outed herself. He could have said, you're Jewish five years and I didn't know this in our marriage. How could you deceive me? I'm not doing a thing. You can die with all of them. That would have been a very predictable response. So she has courageously gone to the king um, and she has acted. Last chapter, the action is the king, the the Lord wakes the king up in the middle of the night. He can't sleep. 
He reads through the history of his kingship. He, he finds out that this guy Mordecai, who uh, had done something wonderful for him to save his life, and now he honors Mordecai. And we just see the Lord working in chapter 6 to honor his people. Esther's never mentioned. Chapter 7, she is acting. And let's be clear about this. She's not just acting in some sloppy, flippant, presumptuous manner. She's not just saying, hey, God's on my side, so it doesn't matter how I do this or how I govern myself or what I do. I'm going to walk in and, hey, she doesn't do that. She's very calculated, very planned, very careful. It's crafted rhetoric. She, <coughs> she, she waits to the second feast to make the request. The king has already committed himself three times now, whatever you ask. So she's led him along so that he's on record three times saying, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. So she's wisely, she went when the sales manager said, go to the seminar, she went. She didn't take the day off and play hooky. She learned how to close the deal. And so she, she knows how to answer objections if they come up. She knows what to do. And so she is at very good rhetoric, very strategic, very persuasive. She got an A on her persuasive speech in, in speech class in high school. She knows how to use words, not, not to create a false manipulation, but how to... How to how to uh, represent a true situation in a way that would help the king see it as something he must act on immediately for his own interest and for the interest of the queen, which obviously he loves. So she really acts. She really acts well. She really acts strategically. She prays. She's not flippant. It's well, well done, and it's courageous. So here's the chap chapters. Chapter 6, humans don't do anything. God does it all. There's a coincidence that saves Mordecai's life, this coincidence of a king who can't sleep at night. It's, am it's amazing that, that, that Esther's never mentioned in the chapter. God's not mentioned in the whole book, but there's this series of coincidences that make it obvious that God is at work in chapter 6. Even the pagans say, whoa, God must be at work. Haman, you're going to fall, in essence, is what they say. God at work, no human endeavor is making a difference in chapter 6. Chapter 7, well, God is clearly at work, but it is human endeavor that is making a difference. And that's what I want to emphasize today. God uses human action. Chapter 6 and 7 are this. Chapter 6, God is sovereign. Chapter 7, man is responsible. Chapter 6, God is providentially ruling and reigning and will bring about his purposes in his way. Chapter 7, God will do that through his people. He will use people's choices and actions. It, it, this is narrative theology. So you could read a systematic theology, which would be a book that takes theological topics and then gives you all the scriptures in the Bible that say that. So we could get all the scriptures in the Bible that talk about God's sovereignty, his reign, his rule, his providence. We could get that and read that like a teaching in, in a, uh, you know, in just teaching material. Then we could get man's responsibility. We could get all the facts. What are all the scriptures that say man is responsible and get all that? Well, this is a narrative theology that in two chapters, it gives us that lived out before our eyes. It's like Psalm 127, 1, which says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. What's that saying? Hey, you can build the city, you can build, I'm sorry, you can build the house, but if the Lord is not behind it, it's not going to work out. 
Or you can watch the city. You should have watchmen on the wall. You should be in your city, fortified city, looking for enemies coming up to attack you. You should have watchmen on the wall. But if the Lord's not protecting you, it doesn't really matter. He's going to let the enemy break through somehow, some way. So he doesn't say, God is sovereign. Who needs a watchman? It says, you got to have a watchman. But if you're not dependent on the Lord, it doesn't really matter. So which is it? Is it God's sovereign or man is responsible? Yes. Yes. The Bible teaches both. And these two chapters emphasize it in a powerful way. That human actions matter. Obedience to the scripture matters. Human actions matter. God's actions ultimately matter. They are both in the scripture. There's never a sense in which we're not responsible, but but it's always true that we're responsible and yet God is sovereign. And there is mystery in this. And anyone who can solve this for you, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility on a chart, on a diagram, through a brilliant sounding uh, teaching with a lot of big words you never heard before. Anybody that can solve this for you completely satisfactorily and say it's completely understandable, well, it's just they're wrong. There is mystery to how this all works out. How, how, it w- how I'm responsible and yet God's ultimately active and responsible. How that all works out, there is a mystery there. And part of being a Christian is learning pretty early to get familiar with mystery. And say, when there is mystery, I'm on my knees saying, Lord, you are glorious. I don't get it, but you are worthy and I worship. That, that's how you respond to mystery. And so there's a mystery in what I'm saying, but mystery doesn't mean, well, we don't try. Mystery means we strongly emphasize providence and we strongly emphasize personal responsibility and action. In the uh, commentary we have out front uh, by Ian Duggett, I'm going to read you a section of what he says about this that I found very helpful. It's on the, se- the chapter we just read. He says, God's sovereign act, and he's talking here about when uh, God woke the king up. God's sovereign, in chapter 6, God's sovereign act is the turning point. That was the turning point in the whole book. A sleepy king that God wakes up. God's sovereign act is the turning point, but God works through the faithful efforts of his people just as much as through remarkable providences. Okay, now listen to the examples he gives, and then I'm going to walk you through them because I want to help us think about how does this play out in my life? This is a very practical truth. Do we want to see our friends come to Christ? We can't reach their hearts and change them. Only God can do that. But we can and should plan to talk to them about Christ, to introduce them to Christian friends, to invite them to church. Do we want to find God's leading for our lives? Progress may depend on Him opening the key doors but there is nothing wrong with getting out there and knocking on the doors. Do we want a better marriage? Well, unless God changes our hearts and the hearts of our spouses, we may have no hope for lasting improvement. But that doesn't mean there is nothing we can do. Don't sit back and wait for God to work if you are unwilling to put yourself out in pursuit of godly desires. Most Christians err on one side or the other of this equation. Some are sit-back-and-pray types whose motto is, leave it to Jesus. For such people, the tendency is to wait for God to drop a solution to all their problems right in their laps. Others have activist personalities and are constantly saying, if it's going to be, it's got to be me. 
For them, the tendency is to assume that the key to progress is following some three-step strategy. The Bible, however, sets both before us the goal of the balance of prayer plus action, leaning on Christ and leading people to Christ, resting in the Lord and walking with him. Either one on its own is inadequate. Both together are the goal. I think this is really true, and I think it's the key to living a sane life, to understand how do I respond in situations. I think it's the key to maturing in the Lord as well, is that it is both. And most of us do tend towards one or the other. You know, waiting on the Lord, trusting the Lord, uh, uh, you know, thinking, meditating, reading the Word, praying, uh, faith. Some of us tend a little more towards there. Some of us tend more towards activism. You're waiting on me, you're backing up, man. I'm doing something, okay? We're going to run down the road and say, what are you doing? I don't know, but I'm doing something. So there's different, different tendencies. And in my own life, depending on the topic, I could be more wait on the Lord or I could be more get something done. So sometimes it's not just everything. Sometimes it can be, you know, what, uh, what activity, depending on the topic in our life. So he used the one, the example of marriage. This is really helpful as you think about your marriage. So maybe you say, uh, I pray for my marriage, it's troubled, or it's stagnant. Maybe it's not in crisis, but it's just stagnant. We're just stuck, we're not really growing, it's, we're familiar with each other, it's, it's not what the Lord wants. There's no spiritual connection, we're not, you know. So, so you could say, well, I'm praying, I'm depending, I'm, opening on the, I'm open to the Lord. Great, don't stop any of that. But if that's all you're doing, the Lord may be calling you, or is calling you to some specific action, Maybe it is uh, sitting down and having a difficult conversation. Maybe it is bringing up a topic as humbly as you can that needs to be discussed. Maybe it's confessing your own sin to your spouse and repenting. Maybe it's serving your spouse in some particular way that would be a real help to him or her. Maybe it's waving your hand and getting some help. Prayer is wonderful. Waiting on the Lord is great all over the Bible. Uh, trusting the Lord. Amen. But sometimes the Lord's help is going to come. You're praying. He's going to bring you somebody. It's going to help you. So maybe it's getting some help, you know, talking to your small group leader or, mature, or, or a pastor or a mature uh, Christian friend or someone who can help you. So maybe it's getting some help. So you need to wed action with your prayers. Or uh, maybe it is parenting, very, very much the same thing. If you find yourself worried, anxious, fearful about your teenager all the time, that's how you're living is worry, anxiety, fear, then that's a symptom that perhaps you're really leaning and trusting your works. You're, you're putting all your hope in the what can I accomplish basket oftentimes. And when you realize you can't accomplish it and change someone's heart, then there's worry and fear and maybe even panic. So maybe where you need help is trusting the Lord, still doing what it is right to, to reach out to and evangelize, or if they're a Christian disciple, your, um, it, you know, lead them to mature as a disciple. Still, I'm not saying get rid of any activity, but I'm saying you don't just lean on your activity, you lean on prayer and dependence and faith and believing God is good and is going to work in the life of your young person. Uh, on the other hand, if you're a mom who says, hey, I don't worry about it, I'm a praying mom, God will sort everything out in the end. 
It's excellent that you're a praying mom, but God calls you to actually do more than pray. Not less than pray, but more than pray. So what is it God's want you to do to be active? So see what I'm saying? It's both and. It's not either or. They, they, they are to be together. Or knowing God's will. That was an example he kind of gave. I think this is a really important one. What is the next step for me in a decision that I have in front of me? Maybe it's a career or job-oriented decision. What's the next step for me? How do I know what God's will is? Talk about mystery. What does the Lord want me to do? What's the next step? Well, uh, I talked, some, I talked to someone about this very topic this week, and as we were talking, we kind of, I would say this is my counsel, but the person came to the same conclusion, and so I think it was a mutual agreement as we just talked about this person's life. And the encouragement was, you know what, you're stuck, so start moving. Take some action. Knock on some doors. Do the next thing God puts in front of you. Even if it's not your lifelong direction for a career, do the next thing that God has in front of you because usually God opens doors to moving people, typically. That's my experience. It's easier to turn a moving ship than it is a docked ship. So it's easy to have some movement and then veer over this direction. So for the person who's just saying, I'm kind of waiting on the Lord and it's been a while and nothing's really happening, You can be actively waiting for the Lord, praying, dependent, crying out, but getting out there and taking some steps and not just doing nothing. On the other hand, for the person who's just action, you've met this person. Maybe you are this person. Yeah, I quit my job today because I'm going to start this new business. What? What what are you going to do? Yeah, it was just, it's impulsive decisions. It's impulsive. I'm just going to go make this happen. I saw an opportunity and I'm going to seize my destiny. I saw a motivational movie. Yeah, I'm going to go do the same thing or something like that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's the same thing. I'm going to go down and make, I'm just going to make it happen. And you know what? The Lord honors that. We'll sort it out as we go. Well, no, maybe you should have prayed. And, st- and gotten some sound counsel from someone that's wise and waited on the Lord by listening. Hey, who else, like the meeting I had this week where someone's saying, I need some help. I, that's very wise. Hey, I need some help from a Christian friend who can share with me. what. So in, if that's, if you're kind of impulsive decision maker, make sure you're praying, make sure you're waiting, make sure you've got a voice of counsel. If you're married, make sure your spouse is on board and you're not just announcing action items Here's what we're doing. Whoa. So do you hear what I'm saying? In chapter 6, God is at work providentially when Esther's doing nothing. Wow, if I just had chapter 6, I would just wait. What's God going to do next? But chapter 7, she's risking it all. She's planned. She's clear. She's she's wise. She's skilled in her presentation. If all I have with chapter 7, I would say, great, just learn how to use your words and persuade. But I don't have just chapter 7. I've got both. God is sovereign. We are responsible. So if you're at a crossroads in your life, if you're, you know, have some burden today, maybe the Lord is calling you to consider both of these and pursue, maybe we could say, dependent action. Or trust the Lord with your steps. So it's a, I'm taking steps, it's like a prayer steps. I'm waiting, I'm listening, but I'm moving. You know, I'm taking some steps in his direction, in the Lord's direction. Now, if you, let me give an encouragement. If you're married, okay, so we got this perspective, we've got this spectrum, right? Wait on the Lord, take action. 
and we all have a lean. So let me give a word to if you're, the married people in the room, if you're on the opposite spectrum as your spouse. You've had some fights, haven't you? you right? If so if you're like, we need to wait on the Lord. Now I'm going. Whoa. How do we, you know, that's, that, can be, that can lead to some conflict about decision making in particular. Well, you're too hyper spiritual. God's not just going to come out of the sky and write us a message. We got to do something. Well, you're too self-reliant and self-assured. You act like there is no God. Just that, you know what I'm saying? It's like two different perspectives that can cause conflict. If this is your makeup, you are actually, I believe, really blessed. Because if you're both humble in the way you view the future and decision-making and action and your need for the Lord, if you're both humble, then you will complement one another and have a very, potentially a very fruitful marriage, making very wise decisions. Because you're aware of your inclination to not take action and just wait Waiting is good, but just kind of a little bit too much, just spirit, just not taking, you, you, you're chapter six, God's providential, which he is. And then the other is, but, but you're realizing, but I need to take action and my spouse reminds me of that, you know, leads me in that or encourages me in that or whatever the category is. And the same, the other is true as well. So dependent action, prayerful steps. We, God is sovereign, we are responsible. That's a really big topic in this book and in the Bible. And ultimately, we want to we we measure that and learn, that, learn about that as we live out our Christian life. Here's the last point we'll be done, is that this chapter shows us that not only does God use human action, but God brings justice. We know there is something just about seeing someone who's trying to harm innocent people, the Jewish people, Someone trying to harm innocent people who ultimately inflicts that very harm upon himself. The gallows he builds for Mordecai, he dies upon. There's something in us that says that's right. There's, there's something just about that. There's something, and the reason is, is because we all are in, created in God's image and we all have an innate sense of justice. None of us like to see a guilty person who's done great harm great harm to someone, just get off free like nothing happened. Something rises up in us when, we, when, the, when someone, an innocent person is harmed like, like was going to happen here in this genocide. So there's something about that that we look and go, that's right, his desire for retribution is overturned and what he designed for others comes upon himself. Haman is responsible for his own downfall. Haman is working against God and his people. God is providentially delivering his people, but Haman at the same time is acting against them. He's responsible for his own destruction. And because of that, in this chapter, Haman's kind of like a micro picture of humanity. He's kind of like the reality of what everyone will face one day. Karen Jobes in her commentary on Esther said this, suddenly about his death, suddenly without warning, the true destiny of human evil is revealed. Destruction by the long promised justice of God. On the final judgment day, when the truth is revealed, the condemned will finally realize that they have no one to blame but themselves. No one who's read the first seven chapters thoughtfully is sympathetic towards Haman. Because Haman is evil and wants to harm innocent people. He's all about himself. He's all about adulation. He's all about the world revolves around me. And anyone that doesn't give me 
what feels like absolute worship is my enemy and they must die and thousands and thousands of others who are of the same religion must die as well. Grandiose ego, grandiose hatred. And so we look at him and say he really got what was coming to him when we read that. But the reality is the scripture says that one day there will be ultimate justice done and everyone who does not know Jesus will get what is coming to them. On the day of judgment, which the Bible says will occur one day in the future when everyone is resurrected, that uh, everyone will stand before the Lord. And if you are welcomed, welcomed into God's presence for eternity, you will have no one to credit but Jesus who died for your sins who paid the just price for your sins, who was buried for your sins, and who rose again. He is the one who paid the price that you and I deserve to pay for our sins. We're all guilty before the Lord for our sins, before the holy God of the universe. We're all guilty. We all deserve judgment. And he paid our judgment. And if you are welcomed into the presence of God for eternity, it will not be because of your good works. It will be because of his work in the cross and resurrection. And it will be because you receive that and you're trusting that. What a glorious, glorious day that that will be. If you're welcomed into his presence, it will be by grace. You will have no one to credit but Jesus. But if you are banished from his presence forever, you will have no one to blame but yourself for your sin and your rejection of Christ. And that's when we read a story about we might say uh, justice with a small j in this chapter, it always points us to justice with a capital J, which is the God who is just and does justly will render justice to all people in a final sorting, which Jesus talks about numerous times. It's not a strange topic in the Bible. It's not an unfamiliar topic. It's a regular topic because the reality of it should cause us to ask the most important question really imaginable. You know, what is my eternal destiny? Do I know Jesus Christ? Have I received his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins? There's no other problem you and I have today that even compares to the weight of that burden and that need. And he opens his arms to us. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. If you recognize your sin, you acknowledge your sin, like the last testimony in the baptism we heard today from Stephen. He came to the place where he acknowledged his own offense to the Lord. And he couldn't be good enough. He couldn't work hard enough. He could only trust Jesus and receive a gift of grace. The Lord wants us all to have that realization and to have that experience of trusting him and receiving him. And if you have never done that, the message of this church, forget the message of this church, the message of the Bible, I hope those are one and the same, but the message of, we're trying to make it that way, the message of the Bible is that you cannot earn it or deserve it. It only is a gift that comes by the work of Jesus Christ for you. So there is eternity or hell, there is grace or there is, we receive justice. We receive a gift of eternal life or we receive what we deserve based on whether we trust Jesus or not. And, and in a world filled with injustices, Esther was almost a book about great injustice, the Jews being exterminated. That would have been a great book. That would have been a story of great injustice, but the Lord intervened. But, but the Lord hasn't intervened every time. There are innocent people that suffer. There are ungodly, uh, wicked people that at least externally prosper in this world. 
there is not full justice done in this lifetime. And so that is grievous. To think about that and to see that, it can be, it can be burdensome to say, why, Lord, why is that wicked person doing great and this godly person receiving persecution, maybe even martyrdom for their faith or something? Why, Lord? This doesn't seem right. And one of the truths that anchors us to deal with the, the, the injustices of this life is to know that it won't always be this way. That our confidence is in a God who does justly. Now, we're called to do justly. We're called to love mercy. So we're called to do our part while we are alive. But we're also called to look at the injustices that we can do nothing about. Maybe they're in another part of the world or whatever. We can pray. But there are injustices that feel like, how can I help that? In those situations, we trust the Lord, the God who will ultimately bring justice one day. So we act today independent in new word, dependent faith on the Lord. We take action in our lives to grow and mature in whatever he's calling us to, but we trust that, Lord, ultimately our lives are in your hands and you have your way. He is sovereign and we are responsible. We want to believe both and we want to respond to both. And we want to know that God is a God of justice as he displays in chapter 7 and will display for all eternity. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.